Let me tell you a story, podcast number 91. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I hope you're enjoying the excitement of the holiday season. If not, we'd like to help you get in the holiday mood. Steve will start us off with a short Christmas story by O. Henry, titled The Gift of the Magi. And I'll be reading from Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 29. As a special treat to this podcast, our friend Patrick Craig provided us with the first chapter of his latest audiobook, Amish Heiress, which you're sure to enjoy. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl, so Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder puff. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only a dollar eighty-seven to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many happy hours she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, 
Stella would have let her hair hang out the window someday to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. She did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sofroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked like the Sofroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Yet take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum watch chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone, and not by a meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the watch chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his steps on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and she whispered, Please, God, make him think I am still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. 
He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow. He was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of these sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone? he said, still with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with a sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed to quickly wake. He unfolded his Della, drew a package from his overcoat pocket, and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said. About me, I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the strings and paper and then an ecstatic scream of joy. And then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs that Della had worshipped for long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then, Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. 
Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. Kate watched Deputy Ramirez cast the footprints beside the bush. She rubbed her shoulders. Why did she feel so tense when she hadn't done anything wrong, when those weren't her footprints? Dimple was right. She had to move beyond her self-focus. Dimple, who sat beside her on a bench, put her arm around Kate. I apologize for what I said earlier. You mean when you told me to get over myself? Dimple pressed her red lips together. That was rude and uncalled for. You don't need to apologize. I've got to stop assuming the world revolves around me and my issues. The older woman plucked a flower from a nearby bush and slipped it into her braid. When I forget that God promised to take care of us, I become frightened and snippy. Despite believing from the depth of my being, he will turn evil into good. I hope you're right. Deputy Caldwell came bounding across the yard, a broad smile on his face. Dimple stood. What did you find? You need to see this for yourself. Kate reached for the wheels of her chair, but he motioned for her to stay and led Dimple toward the road. They hadn't gone five steps when he said, Can't you walk any faster? This is the find of the century, especially after what we discovered at the Whispering Pines. Deputy Ramirez brushed off his pants, gathered his things, and hurried after them. Kate watched the men attempt to rush Dimple out of the yard and up the drive. What could be so exciting? And what was with the connection with the ranch? Minutes passed. She bowed her head and tried to pray, but the sound of an engine caught her attention. She looked up. Dimple was trudging the path around the house with a despondency that accentuated her age. Kate had never seen her friend look so weary or so discouraged, not even the night she talked about killing her husband. Would you come with me? Dimple's lips were pinched, her voice sad. I do my best thinking when I'm roaming the cemetery, and I have a lot to think about right now. The thought of facing Dimple's heartache scared her, but Kate knew she couldn't let her friend confront the situation alone, whatever it was. They moved slowly through the graveyard, so slowly, an observer might have assumed they were mourning the loss of a loved one. Kate looked at her friend. Do you remember the morning we met? Yes, Dimple nodded. That was an impotent day. You're right, Kate grinned. It was a very special day. I'm so glad we connected. Me too. Do you remember when I walked from the rear of the sanctuary towards you? Dimple bent to pick up a scrap of paper. I remember. She put the paper in her pocket. Did you, uh... Kate slowed her wheelchair. Did you sense anything unusual? Dimple moved to stand in front of Kate. Are you asking if I felt threatened? Uh-huh. Kate looked down. Dimple lifted her chin as she'd done that first day. I could tell by your body language something was up. I have to admit I had a moment of panic, but then God spoke. 
He did. I didn't hear anything, but your eyes seemed to drill into my soul, and I realized. Kate's eyes misted. I realized I was about to hurt another innocent, defenseless person. She turned her head. I wanted to make you tell me where the church keeps its money. Tears fell from her eyelids to her cheeks. I've told God how sorry I am, but I never told you. Dimple pulled a tissue from the pocket of her jumper and handed it to Kate. I haven't told you what God told me that day. Twice. The first time was in the chapel. The second time was in the cemetery. He really spoke to you? Kate blew her nose. Indeed. I was thinking of throwing the vase at you, flowers and all, and running home through the cemetery, forgetting, of course, that running isn't one of my strengths. That's when I heard him say, She's mine. Love her like a daughter. And then he said the same words again in the cemetery. God told you to love me? Yes, and he halted you in your tracks. Dimple pulled out another tissue to dab at Kate's face. He had plans for you, including our friendship. She smiled. You've been easy to love, Kate, like the daughter and granddaughter I never had. Kate smiled through her tears. It was true. Dimple had showered her with love. God knew how much she missed her mother, how much she needed a mom and a grandmother. Dimple leaned over the wheelchair to hug her. Kate wrapped her arms around her gentle friend's bony frame. You and God are way too good to me. After visiting J.J.'s grave, the two women made their way to the overlook. Once again, Kate looked across the valley toward Copperville. So much had happened since she'd arrived in Wyoming. Not much of it good. But if God could tell Dimple to love her, he could somehow extricate her from the false charges. We should bring our lunch here sometime, Dimple. The view is fabulous, and this breeze feels wonderful. Good idea, but Dimple's voice lacked its usual enthusiasm. Kate studied her friend, trying to read the emotions that played over her face. Finally, Dimple spoke. I need to tell you what the detectives found. As always, the roller coaster high of a happy moment had to hit bottom. <laughs> Ramsey slapped at the hand that jarred his shoulder. Wake up, Jerry. I brought you chicken noodle soup in a six-pack. A six-pack? He tried to lift his head. It had been an eternity since he'd had a beer. His head dropped. Later. He was too tired now. You need to eat, she jostled his shoulder again. You've been sleeping for hours. He started to turn over, but cried out when a sharp pain bit his belly. A string of obscene words dribbled out the side of his mouth. What's the matter? Tara touched his face. He opened his eyes. Pills. What pills? Pain pills. There weren't any in your hospital room or at the motel. I need something, he groaned. Aspirin. Anything. How about this? She held a whiskey jug at eye level. He grunted. She set the whiskey on the end table. After you eat some soup... She pointed at a pile of clothing beside the hide bed Your stuff from your motel is there, including your laptop. I'm surprised the maid didn't steal it. You were gone a long time. 
I paid ahead and made it clear they were to stay out until I let them in to clean it. I found the psychodope under the mattress, like you told me a while back, she snickered. Officer Watts never knew what hit him. How'd you know I was in the hospital? I went to visit you in jail and was told you'd been hospitalized. My nurse friend filled in the details for me. Have any trouble getting into the motel? No, your card key was still under the mat. She twirled a strand of hair with her finger. The sheriff's department is probably over at the sleeping time right now, trying to figure out what happened to you and your belongings. He slowly pushed himself up against the back of the hide-a-bed. She set a tray on his lap and a covered styrofoam cup on top of it. I have some codeine upstairs from Daddy's knee surgery. That'll help the pain. He grabbed her arm. What does he know about me? Nothing. She jerked her arm away. Good. You'd get along great with Daddy. She pulled a plastic spoon and crackers from the pocket of the scrub she still wore. You two are a lot alike. I'll introduce you one of these days. I can't stay here. He worked the lid off the soup. You have to drive me to Mexico. We'll leave tonight. Kate rested her elbows on the wheelchair arms. Okay, hit me with it. What did Deputy Caldwell say? All that excitement at the house was because, Dimple gripped the railing, because they found tire prints at the entrance to the drive. Plenty of people use your driveway. Yes, but not everyone runs studs on their vehicle in the summer. Run studs? Kate watched a canoe drift silently below them. Whose pickup always has studded tires? No matter the season. How would I... Oh, she stared at Dimple. Mike. Mike Duncan. But he's driven into your driveway dozens of times. That's what I told the deputies. However, Bernie thinks he can prove from the boot prints and the tire tracks that Mike met you in my backyard to do a drug deal. What? Kate gaped at her. That's nuts. I've done my share of dealing, but but Mike doesn't have a clue. Exactly what I told them, except the part about you. I have to admit, the tire tracks are as obvious as the boot prints. She sighed. Bernie wanted me to press charges, but I refused. I find it hard to believe Mike would have a clandestine meeting of any sort, especially in my yard. How did he react when you said you wouldn't do it? His face turned red and he started sputtering. Dimple chuckled. Then he said he didn't need a complaint. He'd add the evidence to what he'd found at the ranch, including proof you've been killing buffalo for Mike. That's insane. I didn't. I I couldn't. Kate groaned. How do I stop this crazy train from dragging us all over the cliff? For a long time, neither woman spoke. A pair of hawks circled above the river, their shrill, high-pitched calls echoing between the hills. You can't stop it, Kate, Dimple sighed. Neither can I. There must be something we can do. Yes, there is. Dimple took both of Kate's hands in hers and bowed her head. Her braid slipped over her shoulder. Oh, God! We are helpless sheep 
who need your shepherding. And so do the Duncans. Satan is trying to steal our joy and our peace. But you can bring faith out of fear, joy out of sorrow, sanity out of insanity, and good out of Elvis. Kate blinked her eyes wide and pressed her lips between her teeth to contain the grin that threatened to give way to laughter and ruin Dimple's earnest prayer. Lord, we are straining at the bit to be done with this struggle. Dimple raised a hand above her head. Help us rely on your perfect plan and wait on your perfect timing. In the meantime, dip us deep into your living water. Wash away the dirt. Fill us with your spirit. Quenched our thirst for peace. May each of us come through this ordeal shining like you, our morning star, and singing your praises for all the world to hear. Amen. Now we'll hear from Patrick Craig's fourth Amish-themed novel with a twist of mystery as well as adventure, danger, and romance. Chapter 1 Trouble in Paradise I won't do it. You will do what I say. I'm 18, Papa, and my own person. You can't make me do anything anymore. Rachel, Jonathan, please stop shouting at each other. The cacophony of voices pushed out the open front door of the house like a symphony orchestra with every instrument out of tune. A girl stood in the doorway, pointing her finger back at someone inside. She spoke again, and this time her voice was low and icy. Mama, I hate him. Ever since he came back, my life has been hell. The word crashed down like an avalanche of rocks, and then there was silence. Daughter, you don't mean that. Please apologize to your papa. I won't apologize to someone that's, that's farooked. Rachel! So, I'm crazy, am I? Well, we'll see. Go on. You want to leave? Just go. Get out of my house. Your house? Your house? I've lived here longer than you. You come back into our lives and think you can just take over and order me around? Papa, I don't even know you. I'll go. I'll go, and maybe I won't come back. With that, Rachel swung around and stomped out onto the porch, slamming the screen door in the face of the man who was following her out. She ran down the steps and out onto the lane and was gone before her papa could catch her. Jonathan Hirschberger opened the door and stood, watching his daughter run through the field next to the house. His wife, Jenny, came out behind him and watched their daughter go. Jenny's face was pale and her eyes were red. Jonathan put his hand to his head. My head hurts, Jenny. Help me inside. Jenny dabbed her eyes with a handkerchief. You know you are not supposed to get angry. The doctor warned you that you could have a stroke. I know, Jenny, but I can't seem to help myself. I don't want to be angry with Rachel, but there is something in her that just pushes me over the edge. 
Jenny put her arm on Jonathan's shoulder and led him back inside. In her, Jonathan, or in you? It was a cold and wet March day in paradise. Spring had not yet arrived with her palette of vivid hues, and the predominant color was brown. Brown stubble, brown earth, dead grass in the front yard. The small swale beyond the pasture fence was filled with runoff from the winter snowmelt, and a few solitary white ducks floated on the surface of the temporary pond, casting their reflections on the leaden surface that drearily mirrored the gray clouds gathered above the Hirschberger farm. Rachel Hirschberger trudged down the path that led away from the house. Her feet sank inches into the soft mud, and the edges of her dress bore the stains of her ill-advised trail-breaking. Her face was red, and a single tear had coursed its way down her cheek. She spoke out loud to no one in particular, and her outburst roused the ducks from their peaceful repose to flutter a few feet across the pond and then settle back again. Why did he have to come back? Everything was fine without him. Now the tears began to flow freely down her face. She wiped them away, but others that seemed eager to mar the loveliness of her face quickly replaced them. Her dark auburn hair was held tightly in a bun beneath her cap, and the wool jacket she wore over her plain dress kept the March chill from her skin, but it did nothing to ease the chill in her heart. The squishing of her boots in the mud mixed with an occasional sob and the rippling sound of the little creek that ran through the cottonwoods off to her right played a strangely discordant concerto that jarred against the serenity all around her. Finally, she came to the gate out onto the main road. As she walked disconsolately down the asphalt, Rachel was absorbed in her sorrow and did not pay attention to the soft clop of the horse's hooves behind her until the small buggy pulled up next to her. A bit chilly for a walk in the mud, isn't it, Rachel? Rachel looked up into the kindly face of Daniel King, her friend from the neighboring farm, he sat on the buggy seat with a quizzical look on his face. Go away, Daniel. I don't need your indefatigable good nature right now. Indefatigable? Yeah, now there's a $50 word. Come on, Rachel, I'm your friend, and you look like you could use one right now. Hop in, and I'll take you wherever you're going and keep you tidy at the same time. Rachel stopped and looked up at Daniel. His handsome, beardless face smiled at her from under the black hat, and he sat straight and tall on the seat. Rachel's shoulders dropped, and she gave a sigh of resignation. She really wanted to be by herself, but her hike through the mud had worn her out. She climbed up on the seat next to Daniel. You and your papa fighting again? Yes, if it's any of your business. Look, Rachel, don't go there. You have spoken with me many times about Jonathan, so it's not like I'm prying into your secrets. What was it this time? Rachel slumped down in the seat. I signed up for another class at the junior college, a class in animal husbandry. I... I want to be a veterinarian, but my papa told me to drop the class. Why, because Amish girls are supposed to stay home after eighth grade and learn to be obedient little servants to the men? 
Rachel looked at Daniel in surprise. Something like that. She looked again. Daniel wasn't smiling. He was staring straight ahead, and his face was set in a stern mask. Rachel suddenly realized that she might have an ally in this handsome young man. He was usually so... so traditional. Why, Daniel, you surprise me. I wouldn't expect anything like that out of you. Daniel shook the reins over the back of the horse and relaxed. The smile returned to his face, and he looked over at Rachel. There's a lot you don't know about me. I'd be more than willing to share it with you if... if you'd let me court you. Rachel turned away abruptly and stared out at the brown fields of Paradise, Pennsylvania. Don't, Daniel. We've talked about this before. You're my friend, but that's all I feel for you. Besides, I don't want to get married. I have... other plans. Daniel didn't let the barbed remark ruffle his calm demeanor. So what are you going to do, Rachel? Run away to the big city and become an animal doctor? Wouldn't you find more work around here? Rachel turned back to Daniel, and now there was excitement in her voice. Don't you see? It's not the 1800s anymore, even for the Amish. It's 1990. There's so much out there, so much more to life than a little farm in Paradise, Pennsylvania. There's music and art and museums, the whole country and even the whole world to see. I want to float down the Nile and see the pyramids. I want to go to the Louvre and stay there for weeks. I want to torment the guards at Buckingham Palace and see if I can make them smile. Daniel, don't you ever want to go, to see, to do? Daniel looked down at the reins in his strong hands. All I want is to stay here and work with my papa. And then, when it's my time, take over the farm and raise the finest saddlebred horses in Pennsylvania. Rachel gave an exasperated sigh. And that's why we could never be together. I want to be part of a much bigger world. And in order to do that, I... I... Can't stay Amish? Asked Daniel softly. Rachel looked at him without speaking. The answer lay heavy between them in a silence broken only by the soft clopping of the horse's hooves on the road. When Rachel banged back through the door, Jenny was sitting on the sofa in the front room. Her face was soft and sad. She lifted her finger to her lips. Rachel pulled off her coat and hung it on the hook by the door. Where's Papa? He's sleeping, Rachel. He got a bad headache when he got so angry. You know that it hurts him physically when you fight with him. Rachel looked down. She felt bad, but she wasn't going to back down. Mama, is he the only one who lives here? Why do we have to tiptoe around and make everything easy for him all the time? Jenny motioned for Rachel to come sit beside her. Rachel hesitated and then plopped down stiffly beside her mama. Jenny's arms circled Rachel's waist. She pushed through the stiffness and pulled her daughter up close. It took a minute. But Rachel finally relaxed and put her head on Jenny's shoulder. Soft sobs began to shake Rachel's body. 
Jenny reached over and stroked her daughter's forehead as Rachel began to calm down. I know it's difficult to have Jonathan home. He still struggles with the disaster on the boat and the injuries he sustained. He watched his parents die, and it hurt him so. I know, Mama, and I feel sorry for him, but he's so hard to live with. Jenny turned Rachel's face toward her. Rachel, your papa was a different man for eight years. He completely lost any memory of being Jonathan Hirschberger, of being an Amish man, of you and me, and our home here in paradise. I know, Mama, but... Jenny put her fingers softly on Rachel's lips. Let me finish. When your papa converted to the Amish faith, before we were married, he came from a background that was very worldly. He was an atheist, or at least an agnostic. He had tried drugs and different religions. He thought he was going to be a famous musician, and if he hadn't met me, he probably would have been. When he lost his memory, he went back to what he intuitively knew, playing music. He became famous out there in the world, and made a lot of money. Rachel stirred. I know the story, Mama, but it still doesn't explain why he's so strict with me. Jenny sighed and put her hand to her face. An errant tear had attempted to run down her cheek, and she brushed it away. Rachel saw the involuntary movement, and her heart softened. This really hurts my Mama. She also wishes things were not this way. Rachel's arms crept around her mama. Oh, mama, I'm sorry. I know all this makes you sad. Yes, daughter, I am sad. I am sad for the years we missed, you and I, with your papa. And I'm sorry for the pain that your papa went through. And I am sorry that you and he are not close, like you once were. But I am also very grateful I thank du Liebergott every day that Jonathan came back to me, to us. I thank him for the amazing miracle he performed when my heart was broken beyond hope. You must know that your papa and I were made for each other. We are two lives and one heart. It is a very special thing that God does for people. That is his plan for marriage, and someday, I hope you will find the same joy. Jonathan and I had ten wonderful years together. It was especially joyful after you were born, when he disappeared, and I thought he was dead. Jenny paused and dabbed her eyes. Rachel, when your papa came home, he did not really know who he was. He still goes back to being Richard Sandbridge from time to time, and I think that is what confuses you. One minute he is a strict Amish man, and the next he is a very easy-going musician. I know it's been hard. The only thing that has saved your papa is the Ordnung. He clings to them like a life preserver, because some days that is the only way he knows who he is and he is so dependent on them that he forgets the Ordnung don't save us. And so he tries to live by them 
as best he can, to stay grounded in our world. That's why he is so strict. My papa went through the same thing when he came back from World War II. He was so devastated by his experience in the Pacific that he swore he would come back to the church and keep the rules with all his heart. He believed that keeping the Ordnung would make him all right with Gott. It took a terrible tragedy to make him see differently. Rachel took her mama's hand and put it to her cheek. She kissed it. I'm sorry, mama. I don't understand this sometimes, but I do love papa. I'll try to do better. And I love you, and will try also, daughter. The women looked up to see Jonathan standing in the doorway. He held out his arms, and Rachel rose and went to him. His strong arms enfolded her, and she saw the love in his eyes. She held on to him and hid her face against his chest. I hope so, Papa. I truly hope so. Thank you, Patrick, for providing that excerpt from The Amish Heiress. That's also available in print and ebook online. Now, here are four quotes about Christmas. From Bob Hope My idea of Christmas, whether old fashioned or modern, is very simple loving others. Come to think of it, Why do we have to wait for Christmas to do that? From Roy L. Smith, He who has not Christmas in his heart will never find it under a tree. And Rochelle E. Goodrich, Christmas is our annual reminder to look up, pondering celestial stars, to look out, serving those in need, and to look down, glorifying our Lord in humble prayer. And from Sigrid Unset, And when we give each other Christmas gifts in his name, let us remember that he has given us the sun and the moon and the stars, and the earth with its forests and mountains and oceans, and all that lives and move upon them. He has given us all green things, and everything that blossoms and bears fruit, and all that we quarrel about, and all that we have misused, and to save us from our foolishness, from all our sins, he came down to earth and gave us himself. That'll close us out. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading and happy holidays. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. 
Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.